Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. We've come west to see in the new year. This is a decision that has much to do with getting away for a few days, of course, to put Christmas and excess behind us, to breathe in the ocean air, to make for the other coast, the wilder, rockier, stormier coast. There's nothing startling about such a desire. It must be hot-wired into each of us, this need for wide skies and exercise and briny Atlantic winds. And what a way, what a place in which to begin another year in the West with a rejuvenation of the soul. And out here, the sky is, yes, larger and more dramatic. The horizon is wider and the towns and villages more scattered. The pace is gentler, the forests are denser, the waters of the fjords are cold and dark, although the scattered little lakes are not yet frozen over for the winter. Dense forests, fjords, frozen waters. Wait, this is hardly Ireland. No indeed, this is Sweden. Specifically, the west coast of Sweden, the Bohusland coast that stretches between Gothenburg and the Norwegian border with stony archipelagos sprinkled offshore and serpentine fingers of the Atlantic pressing dozens of miles into the heart of the land. Our friends collect us at Gothenburg Airport and we drive north on the coast road towards Norway. A small, cold, red sun hangs low in the southwest. It'll be dark a little after three although the sunsets last longer than at home, they nibble into the span of night. The Scandinavian touches I've been anticipating are present in abundance. A large Ikea, a graceful suspension bridge leaping a gorge, empty roads and dense woods, and tidy towns with candles shining in every window. Really, every single window, they are ubiquitous. Santa Lucia, how are you? We arrive at Lysesheel, the snug town on the edge of the deep Gullmarsfjord that will be our home for the next few days. The sun rises late the following morning and we explore. The hardness of this coast takes my breath away. Long ranges of exposed red granite shine in every direction, gleam in sharp winter sunshine. Tough land to farm in days gone by, I think, coaxing potatoes out of shallow, wet, peaty soil. I say so aloud, and our Swedish friends tell us tales of 19th century famine, of devastating emigration, the countryside cleared of people who could take no more if they survived at all, and who left for new lives on the other side of the Atlantic. Such tales bring connectedness across the sea, I think, linking Ireland and Sweden Massachusetts and Manitoba and Minnesota, linking suffering at home with, sometimes, new hope abroad. Later, we eat herring and potatoes baked slowly with cream and anchovies. The following day, the last day of the year, is dark and bitter with a wind sweeping down from the north. We take a ferry from Nisushil across the sea to the little island of Gullholmen. It is highly picturesque, 
with its harbour, its winding lanes, its thickly clustered, immaculate clapboard houses with deep balconies of carved wood. A church, austere, white-painted, with fine chiselled spire. The village is deserted, entirely empty of its inhabitants. The place when it comes to life in high summer, I'm told, when the owners of these second homes travel over from as far away as Stockholm, over 500 miles distant. Otherwise, they sit empty. Stockholm is a long way away, I say, a long way to travel to a holiday house. And there I was, thinking that the drive from Dublin to Connemara was pushing it a bit. But no, the stormy west fulfils a certain function in Sweden, too. The east coast of the country shelves gently into the tideless, brackish Baltic. The craggy red rocks, the endless scattering of islands, the Atlantic tides of Sweden's west coast, on the other hand, call to the soul. We stand by the little landing stage and look out across the water to the lights beginning to shine on the mainland. And then we look back at these second homes, their windows dark on this dark afternoon and empty of lamps and candles. Our Swedish friends smile wryly and ask, Reminds you of anything? We dine on Blini on this last night of the year and bake salmon. At midnight we go outside and look down across the red roofs of Lieseschiel towards the sea. The bells of the Lutheran church on the hill begin to peal joyfully and fireworks explode above the waters of the fjord. Got der, we say, and we clink glasses in the freezing starlit air. Happy New Year. Not many travellers from Bonbeg in County Donegal who board the ferry for beautiful Tory Island know the name Lord George Hill. But he was the man who built the harbour back in the 1830s and it was only one of many industrial infrastructures to the credit of the enterprising younger son of the Marcus of Downshire. Born in 1801, George's adult life, well, he was 16, began in the Horse Guards transferring to the Irish Dragoons in 1825, but retiring on half pay in 1829 to be elected as MP for Carrickfergus. It was a fairly usual path for younger, well-born sons, and Lord George was very well-born with the family seat at Hillsborough Castle, despite scandal biting at its heels. Lord George's father, the second Marcus, had been bitterly opposed to the Act of Union in Parliament and when it went through, he killed himself a few months before his son was born. George's private life was less smoothly successful. In 1826, he had fallen hard for 20-year-old Cassandra Knight, 
of whom his acid-tongued widowed mother said, no money, all charm, and that for the present was that. Quiet Cassandra was the eldest daughter of Edward Knight of Godmersham Place in Kent. Yes, that Edward Knight, the elder brother of Jane Austen, who took the name Knight when he was adopted by wealthy cousins of that name. But Mama either changed her mind or George finally put his foot down because they were married in 1834 at the hugely fashionable church of St George's Hanover Square in London. And when George finally received his inheritance, he purchased a small estate at Guidor in County Donegal. But tragically, Cassandra died in childbirth in 1842, leaving her husband with four children, including the newborn. As was the frequent custom, their care fell to her sister Louisa, who was coincidentally Aunt Jane's goddaughter. Few areas were more desolate or deprived than Guidor in those years, and the new landlord described the area as being controlled by a few lawless distillers, while the local schoolmaster said the people had the most needy, hungry and naked condition of any people anywhere. George set about changing things, and a memorial plaque in Bunbeg Church used to testify he devoted his life and fortune to civilise Guidor and raise the people to a higher social and moral level. That included building Bunbeg Harbour to create a fishing industry, building and opening a hotel to attract moneyed tourists, and opening a shop to sell local produce in a kind of cooperative. You could call him a forerunner of Father James McDyer in Glencolum Kill. Lord George also spoke Irish and believed in encouraging individual industry. He was, of course, resented by landleaguers, but against all the horror of the Great Famine, the population even increased in stark contrast to other parts of the Northwest. That may have in part been due to the fact that Hill sold grain at a loss to ease the hunger deprivation among his tenantry. By the 1890s, the thriving fishing industry he founded was even ferrying lobster and crab to smart London restaurants. But some post-independence revisionism isn't inclined to give credit to Protestant landlords, however far-seeing, and Lord George's thanks for the huge development of his estates were to have his plaque vandalised by people calling themselves Republicans during the 1970s. Mind you, he had also forthrightly, if somewhat uncharitably, called the famine a visitation of divine providence on the people for being so rooted in old prejudices and old ways that no teacher could have induced them to change. But he achieved far more for his tenants of his estates than did, for instance, a certain Sir William Gregory, whose second wife was to achieve considerable literary and theatrical fame as one of the founders of the Abbey Theatre. Gregory was responsible during the famine years for what became known as the Quarter Acre Clause for Poor Law Relief. Put simply, anyone who owned more or tenanted more than a miserable quarter acre could not claim famine relief. The aim was to encourage, for which read force, tenants to abandon their pathetic holdings to their landlords to avoid starvation. If it's Augusta Gregory rather than her husband we remember today, 
As recently as 2018, Lord George's wives got mention at a meeting of Letterkenny Council. Perhaps inevitably, but rather controversially, Louisa Knight had become the second Lady George Hill in 1847. The ceremony had to take place in Denmark under royal warrant, English and Irish law, raising its eyebrows at the idea of a man marrying his deceased wife's sister. The couple went on to have one son and were apparently very happy. But when Lord George died in 1879, it was in Guidor with Cassandra he was buried, while Louise's body is buried in Letterkenny, together with that of the third sister, Marianne, who had come to Ireland to live with her. And in 2018, there was a proposal to make tourist capital from the Austin connection. But for one Letterkenny councillor, there was to be no truck with the name Jane Austen or her nieces. He didn't see why they should promote a deceased author who was never in the town. Further, he had lived in Letterkenny for 42 years and never heard about her nieces. So there. My mother wasn't the greatest cook. She was a lovely baker when she found time to make soda bread or a fruitcake, but her culinary offerings weren't terribly exciting. Like many Irish families at the time, we didn't eat meat on Fridays, and somehow my parents happened upon an easy, quick recipe for a Friday dinner when they both got home from school. This involved mixing a can of tuna and a can of tomato soup and serving the result on a bed of brown rice. Penance, indeed. My mother had another tuna recipe, trotted out for special occasions, called tuna aurora. This involved more canned tuna, pineapple and spaghetti. I think she'd found it in an Australian cookbook her students gave her as a Christmas present. What my mother really was good at was encouraging her students. She taught for most of her professional life at the same boarding school close to our home in Rathfarnham in Dublin. She was deeply committed to her girls and cared very much about their development. She really believed in them and, if I may borrow a line from Maeve Binchy, all her geese were swans. When a former student was in a play or doing stand-up, we'd go along. If one had a baby, she'd send a note. On the rare occasion that one of her girls died, she was deeply upset. She was invested in them and so she felt their losses and particularly their successes. When the school closed, she couldn't face the idea of working anywhere else and from the leftovers of this teaching life, she built a whole new career of teaching teachers. The student who had the most practical impact on our family life remains totally anonymous to me. Back in 1988, when we were all happily celebrating Dublin's millennium, a milling company ran a national competition encouraging people to invent recipes that could have been made by Dubliners a thousand years ago. 
the vast majority, and the eventual winner, all made cakes. But one of Mammy's students entered with a savoury dish called chicken natural, or naturel, to be fancy. And she came second. The dish combined chicken with yoghurt and soup and had a topping made from breadcrumbs, oatmeal and, of course, a bit of butter. This recipe is delicious and fairly easy to make. It had the perfect amount of history and personal connection to get a conversation going at a dinner party. In our house, it changed everything. I'd say nearly every dinner guest that came to our home for the next two decades got a taste of it, served proudly from the big handmade terracotta baking dish by the light of our pink lamp on the piano in the dining room. It's over a decade since my mother died, but I still make chicken naturel once a year or so, and I cook it not with chicken, but with extra turkey and ham from the Christmas dinner. Technically, there were no turkeys in ancient Difflin, but that's all right. It's the perfect meal for these bleary, soft days between Christmas and the cold day in early January when the fairy lights are switched off. In these days, the leftovers of one year, the new one just beginning, our memories seem to glow a little brighter and the past smells a little closer. I love that I have this useful, easy and delicious recipe, all the more nostalgic since it encapsulates the spirit of my mother encouraging her students, sharing their successes. I wish I knew the name of the girl who invented this recipe back in the late 1980s. I wish I knew how proud my mother was of her work, even if she didn't eventually win. I wish I knew how many guests she helped us feed. And I wish she knew how her little recipe, perhaps forgotten everywhere else, is still in my mammy's baking folder, and it brings her just a little back to me every year. My earliest football memory isn't even my own memory, but it is part of family lore, and whether or not it actually happened, and I can't put my hand on my heart and say with absolute certainty that it did, I treasure the picture it paints of my five-year-old self. It was the 1966 World Cup, the never-to-be-forgotten until we were sick of hearing it triumph for the home country, England. Wembley, World Cup Willie, and all that. But my memory is not concerned with England's victory, Jeff Hurst's hat-trick, the brothers Charlton, or Nobby Stiles' toothless grin. It is not about England at all, heaven forbid. My memory is about Brazil. Brazil, the team synonymous with the beautiful game. Brazil who in four World Cups between 1958 and 1970 won three of them. 1966 was the only one they didn't win. In 58, they'd travelled to Sweden, becoming the first country to win a World Cup outside their own continent. In 62, they successfully retained the Jules Rimet trophy in Chile. And of course, in 1970, 
they won the trophy outright in Mexico with their third triumph with what is considered to be the greatest World Cup team ever. The names Jairzinho, Tostao, Gerson, Pelé and Rivellino, not to mention the captain, Carlos Alberto, occupy an exalted place in the hearts of all football lovers old enough to remember. And the jewel in their crown was, of course, Edson Arantes do Nascimento, Pelé. Pelé, the greatest player in the history of the game. In terms of World Cup performances, fans of Lionel Messi, please note, only Maradona's name is ever given serious consideration as a rival. One recent Christmas, I received presents of both players' autobiographies, and their contrasting personalities could not be more marked. Pelé, modest and unassuming, without trying to paint himself as a saint, but grateful for the opportunity football gave him to escape poverty. And Maradona? Emotional, self-reverential, lashing out at selected targets and at pains to declaim how much he is loved by the people. Two very different men, but the most gifted of footballers. I remember seeing the young Maradona at Lansdowne Road in 1979 when the world champions Argentina played Ireland in a friendly match. Maradona had not made it to the 78 World Cup squad, but word of his extraordinary talent had spread like wildfire in the intervening months. He came on as a substitute at Lansdowne and showed enough touches to whet all our appetites for the years ahead. Unfortunately, I never saw Pelé play live in all his glory. He retired from international football soon after that 1970 World Cup. Well, the man had won three winners' medals, a record still unequalled. What else could he achieve? And yet, he was only 29 years old in Mexico. At the princely age of 17, he'd won his first medal in Sweden, scoring three goals in the semi-final and two more in the final itself. After his and Brazil's second win in Chile, the expectations must have been high for a rolling hat-trick of wins in England in 66. But it was not to be. And one of the reasons it didn't happen was because of the treatment meted out to Pelé on the pitch. The obvious target for punishment from inferior opposition, he was kicked and fouled repeatedly. These were the days before substitutions were allowed, so you just had to stay on the pitch and take it. And it was during some coverage of one of these matches on our black-and-white TV screen that I witnessed, or so I am told, the greatest player in the world being repeatedly attacked. It was all too much for me, and I ran out of the room. I was found sitting at the bottom of the stairs, a white blonde, curly-headed five-year-old, bawling my eyes out at the assault on my hero. It was an early lesson in the unfairness of life. But perhaps it made the victory of Brazil four years later with that team all the sweeter. Like in all the best fairy tales, beauty did triumph in the end. And at least for the 1970 World Cup, I have no need to rely on anyone else's memory.
That one I can remember myself. I travelled to France in summer with my boyfriend. We took a train into airless, verdant Limousin. The walls of our room were bare, no light fixtures, a deal table, a bed, all around us airless, verdant countryside. We ate pastries, had one public argument and spent a lot of time in the bed. Passing through Paris on the return, I visited the Gallery of Geology and Mineralogy and there met with the real-life version of an image I've seen many times, the Petit Fantôme, a slice of mineral matter that looks as though a smiling spectre is trapped in it. The pattern is incidental, but its cuteness seems to address you consciously. It was kept as part of a collection of pictorial stones by the surrealist Roger Calois, and when I was a student I had a photograph of it on my desk. This meeting in Paris felt like finding a forgotten friend. I also caught Covid in France. This meant that, a mere week after the deal table, the shutters open on a creamy bank of the Vizaire, I lay alone in bed in Dublin hallucinating from fever. Its pitch was unprecedented. I tried talking to it, the fever, I mean. What are you doing? I asked. Burning off the bug, it replied, or so I fancied, in a hiss. OK, I can accept this, I told it, practising serenity. I closed my eyes and in that moment, I do not exaggerate, I felt my temperature surge into the danger zone, then break immediately and begin, right there, to heal. One month later, I discovered I'd also gotten pregnant in Limousin, right there, somewhere between the table and the bed and the vizier. The body in its fever, then, was hunting viruses and incubating the first spreading cells of life at the same time. Every morning at four, the baby begins kicking inside me in emphatic tattoo, like a tiny, reliable poltergeist. These slow thuds turn into bubbles. I think about the spasming glass of water on the dashboard in Jurassic Park because this is what it feels like, like a surface rippling. I have become a universe. At work, I spool and unspool 90s microfilm as the baby thumps around like a lottery drum. Scanned at a random angle is a note young Samuel Beckett seems to have left for someone. Sorry to miss you last night and again today, no chance of further meeting, bye. This is funny to me, perhaps because it's the only thing I can read. Everything else on the microfilm is written in Beckett's feathery cursive, mostly illegible. Beckett doodled ghouls and witches in his margins a lot. I doodle cubes and cakes. The baby kicks. Sorry to miss you. No chance of meeting. Goodbye. Under the wand of the ultrasound machine, the baby shrinks away and hides her face, but suddenly her spine emerges, tensile as a quill, more like a fossil or a sigil than a person yet. One angry eye socket surges into view and makes me gasp. Yes, they can be skeletal at this stage, says the nurse. She says it like that, 
skeletal. Beckett claimed to remember his time in the womb, to have what he called intrauterine memory, a sensation of entrapment and loneliness. In the archive I am chasing impressions, and most of these are repetitions or compulsions or habits of thought. An image of green larches recurs in his work, a rocking chair, familiar streets and rooms and orientations and ide fix and calcifications, the sucking stones of his novel Malloy, images of compression and blockage, of things which will not dissolve. I get bigger and I can't lie on my back anymore. In the book I'm reading, a woman has mastitis. Her breast is hard and bulbous like a ball. Her baby cannot latch. It's as if she is ossifying. Winter closes in. Rain flashes on the country roads that wind around the town. At night the baby wakes and so do I, and together we walk through the house. At four in the morning I'm sitting in the cold darkness on a balance ball. My pelvis, which I picture as a trencher of bone, is something I like to imagine gleaming underneath the archaeologist's brush on a rainy excavation site a thousand years from now. I pull up a months-old Instagram picture of the Petit Fantôme, smiling wanly in its little cell of compressed matter, winking whitely from the blackness like a fetal scan. I go back to bed and wait. The baby is due in spring. There are long weeks of velvet darkness to get through. The sonorous tone of the foghorn in Dunleary Harbour resonated through my childhood. Whether it was a wild winter night or one that was eerily calm and wrapped in a thick blanket of fog, I would fall asleep to the rhythmic sound sending out a warning to mariners. It travelled inland over the sleeping houses where it reached my ears and always comforted and soothed me. In my mind, I could see the beams from the two lighthouses illuminating the waters of the bay in conversation with their sisters on the bailey and the kish bank. A ballet of light and sound on a potentially dangerous night. Lighthouses are majestic towers of protection. They warn of danger, but they also guide us home. Bulwarks against the rages of Mother Nature. Harbingers of hope and of care, they are the guardians of some of the most beautiful, rugged and isolated parts of the world. Perhaps it was my childhood memories, or perhaps it was the compulsion to find some perspective after a challenging year, that this time a year ago fueled an urgent need to remove myself to a remote lighthouse as the old year faded and the new one began. So as December melted away, I found myself staying at Fanad Lighthouse in the far north of the island, in Donegal. To fall asleep under the shadow of this sturdy, stoic and elegant lighthouse, watching the rhythmic dance of the beam on the windowsill, was as comforting as the sound of the now-silent foghorn of my childhood. 
Fanet Head is a wild place. Waves crashed over the rocky shore and the cold winter air was full of wheeling gulls, terns and cormorants. Whales had been spotted the day before we arrived. Above the ocean, the enormous, ever-changing sky was daubed in a palette of washed-out shades of blue and white and grey, soaking seamlessly into the sea at the horizon. I was mesmerised by the view and spent hours staring out into the vast expanse of North Atlantic towards the Hebrides. Tory Island appeared and disappeared as the clouds lifted and fell again. Watching the churning ocean, I wondered about all the life that exists under the waves, a vast unknown world hidden from our view. And as I pondered on all I could see and couldn't see, on what I knew and didn't know, the towering lighthouse was at my back, reminding me that I was safe. Buffeted by the wind whipping around me, I watched the last light of the year drain away. The darkness became total and the lighthouse began its nighttime conversation with the lights from nearby Inish Trahul and Tory Island and my view of the sea became a vision of infinity. We have no idea what is around the corner of our lives as the years turn and the months roll by. The future is hidden like the ocean on a dark night. Little did I know this time last year that 2022 would be the year that my mother would complete the story of her life and leave this world and all who loved her for whatever comes next. She was our lighthouse, shining her light through the storms of our lives and the darkness, gently guiding and encouraging us from the moment we were born. All around our coasts, in stunning locations, is a necklace of lighthouses. Standing strong, illuminating the way ahead, holding firm while all around them Mother Nature may be creating dangerous chaos. And now, just over the horizon of life, on some far shore, my mother continues her vigil of comfort and care. Her gentle whispers join those of the lighthouses, telling us that in the end all will indeed be well, that all storms eventually pass. On this morning's programme we heard Red Granite by Neil Hegarty, Miss Austin's Nieces and What Happened to Them by Emer O'Kelly, Leftovers by Connor Hanratty, From the Miscellany Archive, My Earliest Football Memory by Carl O'Neill, A Bit of Matter by Neve Campbell and Lighthouses by Barbara Scully. The music was Santa Maria, performed by Anita Vedres on violin, Dermot Dunn on accordion and Malachi Robinson on double bass. And that was recorded at a recent Sunday Miscellany Live in the Pavilion Theatre Dunleary, County Dublin. Bawdsey Nilamy by Emmet Spiceland. O Lang Syne by Guy Lombardo. Masquenada by Sergio Mendes and Brazil 66. And Minuet in C-sharp minor by Ravel, played by Stephen Osborne on piano. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. To listen back to this week's programme, go to the RTE radio player or rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday hyphen miscellany. You can also follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter and all the usual podcast platforms. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. 
For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.